Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining me. I must just say something before I introduce you to my guest, and that is today is a bit of a celebration for me because this podcast today begins my fifth year as a podcaster on Blog Talk Radio. And next month, I will be celebrating the beginning of my eighth year hosting my weekly show that started back in those days in the L.A. Talk Live studios. And I cannot think of a better guest to share this with than my guest, Ken Attiti. He loves and collects stories, and you are in for a treat Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you, Marcia. It's great to be on the show with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. On your uh, turning that corner of as long as you've been doing it. Yes, I like you, my friend. I love stories. In fact, my shirt says, "What's your story?" We all have them, and it's, I believe that to be very true. And you are absolutely no exception because you collect stories and this is going to be a great show because we're going to be talking about your career and your and your latest book but before we do that i i like to start the show off with having my guests tell us a little bit about yourself so could you just tell us a little bit about you please well, I'm just a hard-working guy. <laughs> um, I love getting up in the morning because I've always got exciting things to do. And uh, fortunately, about 90% of all the things I do have to do with stories. I get to read stories. I write stories. Uh, I edit them. Um, I figure out who owns the rights to them. Uh, I, I get them ready for either publication or for pitching to Hollywood. And then I take them out there and uh, set them up in Hollywood as movies and then supervise the production of the movies and and then the marketing of the movie. So it's a story, story, story from first to last. And um, I've, I've been blessed to have a life, you know, centered on stories and how they get out to their audiences and how we can get them to bigger audiences. Pretty exciting. I'm sure your mind, I don't know what you do to just calm that. Maybe we'll hear about that as we move through our conversation together. But I do believe we all have stories. Some people don't even know they have them, which I think is pretty interesting. If you were to just start a conversation, and I can can start a conversation with the wind, they have stories too. But I thought we could talk about your, your latest book is right in front of me right now. And the name of that book is called My Obit. It is Volume 1, Daddy Holding Me. My Obit, okay. Given that title, 
why did you write this book? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I struggle with the title, but the truth is that um, as a writer, I guess I have enough vanity to know mm-hmm. that I would not be happy with somebody else writing my obit. And if I really felt that way, then I needed to put my energy where my thoughts were and, and write it myself. And uh, that's what I did with, with this book. Uh, if anyone should, you know, anyone should tell your story, it should be you. That's my view of it. And uh, the other thing, to be honest, is that um, I am not the most famous guy in the world. And I thought even worse would be nobody writes it at all. And nobody would know what a remarkable, interesting, challenging life I've had. And that's kind of the last thing I have to do in honor of the life I've led in the world of stories. I think that's so great because I don't know about you. I mean, I I do subscribe to the Los Angeles Times, and besides perusing the newspaper, I absolutely read the obituaries every day. I don't know why. I'm curious about the life stories of those that have passed, and hopefully they've lived a long life. And so I do read those, and I I think the premise is so fabulous. And I would like to tell our listeners right up at the top of the hour, you have a fabulous website, and and it's very easy to find, and it's very easy. I don't even have to have it. I don't have to spell it. It's simply storymerchant.com. And on that website are all of the businesses that you are involved with, along with fabulous YouTubes um, where people can look at you. When I first started doing this back in 2015, I was in a studio, and I was audio and visual, and I really loved that. That opportunity came to a close, and I moved over to podcasting minus the video. But it's it's wonderful to look at you and feel your energy in these uh, YouTube videos that you've done. But I can feel it even without looking at you because I know you're a man of passion. And I know that you are an exceptional writer. And I thought, in looking at this book, is there a favorite section of your book that you could tell us about that, that just comes to mind? <laughs> That's a great question. The uh, <laughs> One of my favorites is about a phone call I got from my sister, Mary, my older sister. Um, One day she called me and said, we have a problem. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, Fred, who's my brother, she said, Fred wants the pot. And I said, Fred wants the pot? And she said, yes. And I said, that's ridiculous. Fred has never cooked anything in his life. What would he do with the pot? (laughs) And I started thinking about this cauldron, this aluminum cauldron that my grandmother had given me and uh, that I has enshrined in my, above my cabinet covered with a scarf so it won't get dusty between use, mm-hmm. uh, make her, her famous beans in and other Lebanese dishes and as well as my gumbo, which is from my mother's side of the family. In any case, I went through all of these thoughts about how I was not going to give him the pot, that he just wanted it for the wrong reasons. And we talked for about half an hour about how 
this is not going to happen. And she had to just, I was telling her what she should tell him to get him off this track. And then she said, wait a minute. You know, I said plot. Did you think I meant pot? I go, yeah, I thought you said pot. I thought, you know, he wanted my grandmother's pot. She says, no, she, he wants the, the extra plot at the cemetery. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, I, I, are you kidding me? He can have that. I, I could care less about the cemetery plot. <laughs> so it was all a big misunderstanding. But it kind of brought to all kinds of family complications just by thinking about it because I w- would have guarded the pot with my life, but I didn't <laughs> all about the cemetery plot. Um, so this, my my growing up was filled with all kinds of zany situations that sound like they're from a sitcom, but that was one of my favorites. That's it's so that's so. Story. I I love that. You know, it's so funny when you reach a certain age, how you look at physical things, and I I drive my children crazy. When you said pot just then, if you were to come into my kitchen right now and I was to point up at this pot that's sitting above a cupboard in my kitchen, I would say to my kids, now you know Grandpa always made corn on the cob in that pot. You cannot get rid of it. One of you needs to take it. So, I mean, when I heard you say that, it's like, oh, I kind of can relate to a pot. But it's so funny because we, like you said, we all have stories. That's just great. So you've written this book. It's long. It's a thick, beautiful book in in a size of a font that personally I really like. I think it's really easy to read, and I think it's a beautifully well written book. But I'm curious because, you know, the said volume one up there at the top, and congratulations, by the way, on your award for that book. Um, so it, it, people are going to want to know. People are asking, is there going to be a volume two? Oh, yeah, there sure is. I mean, the reason this all happened is that the book was so long that I couldn't, I realized that I, I can't publish a 900-page book and expect anybody to read it. So I did my best to cut this first volume as much as I could. And uh, the second volume, which is focused more on my mother, whereas this is more focused on my father, uh, is is about to be, I'd say, another four months before it's published. But I'm almost done with it now. And, uh, And I'm, of course, thinking about a third book about how my Hollywood life and a fourth book about my academic life. And who knows? I've got plenty of material. and I love telling stories. And I'm getting great response to this one so far. And love it when readers, uh, you know, leave a review on Amazon to let me know how they felt about it. That's mm-hmm. a great feeling. It is. And, you know, you mentioned just quickly in passing your Hollywood life and your academic life. Um You've had an incredible career in both of those areas, and uh, I, maybe that will come up as we have this conversation because you are, um, some people call you Dr. Ken because you do have a doctorate, and um, you are, 
you've gone to some outstanding schools and you've done some remarkable things in your academic life as well. Not to mention, you're a Hollywood life. So maybe this will come up as we've talked because I know you've also written more than two dozen books. You've made over 30 movies. you sold over 300 projects to film and television and publishers, and you own your own publishing company, and you've published over 300 books. Holy cow, man! How do you find time to do all of that? <laughs> well, I don't do anything else, basically. Uh, I, oh, I, man. I do all these things. I, I, I'm very organized, so I... I finally figured out how they all fit together and uh, organized several companies that take care of different storytellers' needs and uh, and it kind of makes sense to me. And, and one of my specialties in life has always been time management because I was taught long ago when I was in high school that um, when you're looking at the two elements of time and work, one of them is infinite. And uh, if you're a philosopher and not exactly grounded in reality, you might think that that's that it's time that's infinite, uh, but that only is true if you're God. When you think about it, uh, what's infinite is work, because good work creates more good work, bad work creates more work. Uh, work just keeps creating itself over and over again. It's kind of like email, so you mm-hmm. can't manage can't manage an infinite force like work. You have to manage what's finite, and all of us have only 168 hours a week. And um, my first book about writing a writer's time is all about what you do with those hours and how to make them work. I mean, I, I studied Greek classics when I was a kid, and Hesiod, one of the first writers in Western tradition, wrote for farmers, and he, he said over and over again, if you put a little upon a little, soon it becomes a lot. Um, and he was talking about transferring a pile of manure from one side of a barnyard to another. <laughs> and if you tried to do it all at once, you'd exhaust yourself. But if you did two shovels a day, you wouldn't notice the work. And uh, before, before you knew it, the whole pile would be moved. So uh, I love time management. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And uh, I'm very good at it myself. I give myself a little bit less um, discipline in the last few years. I'm thinking mm-hmm. it's okay to play a, a game on your cell phone for half an hour a day, but don't go crazy with it. You know, right. I try to avoid things, gobble up your time other than things I love. But isn't that isn't that a lovely ability a lot of people just as you mentioned um do have trouble with time management and depending upon how productive you you tend to be in your own life and the things that you're doing to reduce the stress as my yoga instructor says those those shoulders are not supposed to be at the bottom of your earlobes marcia relax your shoulders take a deep breath focus and 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 you know, and and I and I joke about that all the time, but in reality, it's true. Sometimes, strictly taking a deep breath and going, "Okay, I, I do a lot of notes. I I have a pad that's near me, or you know, we all have these devices now. You can mention that person's name, but if I said it now, she'd be asking me what I'm talking about. Um, 
and to, to just to take those notes, even if it's a manage, even if it's just adding something to your grocery list. I don't have to remember that. I, it's, it's there. So I, I understand what you mean about the importance of, of time management. Um, let me ask you this. What would you describe as your driving characteristic? What, what is it? Uh, I think it's probably that I have a divided mind and have mm. made something of it. Um, I've always been torn between my mother and my father, north and south, east and west, uh, intellectual pursuits and just ordinary people talking to ordinary language to ordinary people and, you know, or giving lectures on the narrative structure of the Quixote and to the International Comparative Literature Association. And I've never been happy with just one side of anything. I've always wanted to be on both sides. Uh, there's a line in The Little Prince where they say, would you like to take a plane or a train? And The Little Prince says, yes, I would like to take a plane and a train. And that's always been my view of it. You know, do you want to go to Louisiana or Missouri? Yes. Let's figure out how to do that in one trip. You know, do you want to go to Europe or Asia? Yes. I've always said yes to anything that was opposites. And uh, so I think that's my most characteristic thing. I, I don't like to be focused on one thing only for more mm-hmm. than a limited time. And uh, when I started to decide what, what I was going to focus on literature in college and graduate school, English literature was not enough for me. It was too limited. So I, I found the field of comparative literature that I'd never heard of before then. And it was studying the literature of many cultures and comparing one to the other. And I thought, this is exactly the perfect place for me. And I became a professor of comparative literature and wrote on, you know, everything from classical, uh, the classical works of Homer and Virgil to uh, to the you know Renaissance works of Dante and Shakespeare and uh, that's when I'm happiest, when I'm doing divided stuff. And I think what's so interesting about that is you do it with comfort. I can hear that. And and so when you're presenting to um, a classroom or an audience or whomever you're speaking to, I think people sense that about you, that you don't stand in confusion, that um uh, it, it's it. You sort of strike me as that combination of a uh, my husband, where you have that right brain, left brain, where you have that um, uh, intellectual. He was an engineer, so he had that logical side, and then he loved to cook, and so then that was that creative side, and that's a wonderful balance to have. And it sounds like that that's sort of how you live your life and I, I you want to just quickly say where you where you got your your education from because it's pretty impressive Ken where did, where did you go to college well I went to um, college at Georgetown in Washington uh, mm-hmm. DC and uh, but I came from a Jesuit high school in Kansas City so I went I had Jesuits for eight years and uh, I you know it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because they set my aspirations high they 
they they taught me discipline they taught me education the importance of education and uh you know their their view of it is if you want to do something do it and then figure out how to pay for it as opposed to <laughs> the more limited view i've been raised on which is that see what you can afford before you buy anything and then buy what you can afford that was my father's approach he was an accountant but um i was just the somebody invites me to a party in New York and I need a tuxedo and I can't afford a tuxedo, but I say yes to the party and then figure out how to get the tuxedo after that. Uh, that's just been my approach all my life because they, I hate limitations. As you can tell, and um, trying to exceed your own limitations for me is the ultimate challenge. Yes. You know, I, I, there's reasons why things happen. It's that whole thing from the secret, the law of attraction. And you mentioned the Jesuits. My husband, who I, I keep interjecting into this conversation, also went to a Jesuit college at the University of Detroit. So that, hmm. that's another thing that we um, have in common. Um, th- that's that's really interesting, and I suspect that the Jesuits had a, as you just mentioned, a very important influence on your life. Was there anyone else that that you would say also had a a very important influence on your life? I think I would know the answer to that. Well, obviously my parents, I think, uh, because they were such opposites, and yet they were complementary. They they fit together despite all the tension of their being together. My father was the ultimate conservative guy, you know, because he was an accountant and wanted to make sure that everything was in order at all times. And uh, my mother was a, kind of a wild woman. And <laughs> from her, I, I got the constant mantra, go for it. Uh, you know, if you if somebody else can do this, why can't you do this? And my father would analyze it all and give me the pros and cons and take urged me to take the cautious approach and uh, so they were opposites and I, mm-hmm. I I thought I was inspired by my mother for the first half of my life but I realized that without my father's uh, he, he created my infrastructure you know he helped me create that and um, so I'm I'm blessed uh, in my new career to to be on the number side as well as on the creative side and yes. not not one over the other to regard them as equal, equally balanced. I like that. I like that a lot. I suspect that my children would say the same thing about my husband and myself. Um, when we talk about one of your books, and you've written a lot, this particular one, How to Escape Lifetime Security and Pursue Your Impossible Dream, describes your career change why did you leave the security of that tenured professorship for the least secure world, Hollywood? Why did you do that? <laughs> well, for one thing, I realized the word security was just a word. And, uh, that you know, the, the other words like freedom, that's just a word too. And uh, when you look at a word hard enough, you realize it's only as true as you want it to be. So, all these people, including me, who had tenure at, you know, at a university, thought they were secure. But I didn't get my security from having tenure. I got it from my ability to do work. At one point, I'd published more 
articles than the entire rest of the faculty combined in this single year. And, uh, and I never was worried about security. Uh, and I also didn't think it was true. And truly mm-hmm. enough, after I left the academic world, tenure started being attacked and even tenured professors were laid off, which was supposed to never happen. And then, of course, I, I chose the world that I thought was free, and we're never free. We're always kind of contained by our own decisions, but at least freedom was the flag of, of the new world of creativity that I went into. And uh, so I did it because I, I didn't feel challenged enough in the academic world. Again, I was being limited. Why don't you focus on one thing like classical Greek you know, classical Greek and Roman epic as opposed to teaching uh, Dante and and the Renaissance epic and uh, contemporary American literature, whatever followed, uh, you know, whatever I, my fancies took me to, I would end up turning it into courses and teaching them. Um, I, I had license to do that because I was in comparative literature. But nonetheless, the atmosphere was suffocating to me after a while and I mm-hmm. I wanted to be I'd much rather be in one where I was constantly stimulated challenged and basically running for my life which is what the world of Hollywood is like you know you're you're thrown into the jungle and you don't have any weapons except your your teeth and your brain and uh, that was I have to say after all these years 35 years in my new career um, mm-hmm. I've never had a day that wasn't ultimately challenging that's that is so don't you think that's i you don't live the status quo and i think that that's what this is all about and um a lot of people you know wouldn't have the interest of doing what you're doing but once you've found how you know you incorporated the storytelling to a different level and you you got involved with movies and films and television and things like that. I'm I'm really interested about we've talked about books, but I'm really interested in knowing about some of the movies that you've produced. What tell me about maybe one of the, some one of the movies that you're proudest of and some of the movies that you've been involved in. Well, The Meg is in production now, the, the sequel to The Meg. Um after 22 years in development, uh, I, I sold the, the original book, The Meg, back in, uh, I don't know what year it was, like 1997 or something like that, 1998. And uh, it became a New York Times bestseller, and we went out on to sell seven more books by Steve Alton, uh, and including sequels to The Meg, uh, The Trench, which was the first sequel, and that's the one that's in the middle of production right now. And uh, but but we sold it first to Disney, then to New Line. Then years went by uh, when those two studios couldn't get it made. Before Warner Brothers came on, and a brilliant new producer named Bill Every was able to to bring in Chinese financing to match Warner Brothers and get the movie made. Uh, so that's exciting to see it come alive and to be every bit as good as I envisioned it to be when we first developed the property with Steve. Uh, it, it just took the world 20 years to catch up with us. And a mm-hmm. similar story happened for The Lost Valentine, which was actually based on a novel by Jim Pratt called The Last Valentine. But when we sold it to Hallmark, 
I had breakfast with the president of Hallmark at the Alameda Plaza in Kansas City one day, and he said, actually, before we even start, uh, I got to tell you, Hallmark is never going to name a movie The Last Valentine, not this company. <laughs> That's and funny. I thought about that and realized what he was saying. He said, no, we're going to call it The Lost Valentine. I hope that's okay. And uh, it was okay. They did a great job. Betty White got to meet her. Oh, and, bless um, her heart. When the, when the book was reissued, after the movie came out, they, they called the new version of the book The Lost Valentine as well. Um, so that was exciting. But that took 10 or 11 years before it got to the screen. Mm-hmm. And uh, as opposed to a, a brilliant script called Hysteria, that I think got to the screen within a year when uh, we read the first script, my partners and I, Michael Simpson and Judy Cairo. uh, It was a perfect script. They asked me for my notes on it, and I said, honestly, I don't have a single note other than to get this movie made immediately because it's so wonderful. And uh, we cast Maggie Gyllenhaal in the lead role. She was brilliant. And... Mm -hmm. uh, Going to London to shoot this Victorian time story was a great experience. And just getting to work with her and see it come alive, see this great script come alive before your eyes, that was a great experience. But every movie is a story in itself. And at this point, I've done a bunch of them. And uh, I just love those little stories. Absolutely, because they're the underpinning you know and and they're 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 important but i'm just thinking about what it would be like to walk around in your shoes which i really can't imagine um so how can you how do you handle waiting around in hollywood i mean the you just mentioned that the meg took 22 years um that you know some of this this other movie took um production took 11 years in development whoa that you must be a very patient man. How do you handle all that waiting time? Well, I apply time management to it because I hate waiting. Uh, <laughs> it's the thing I, I like least in the world, as you can imagine. And yes. I just decided that I wrote an essay about this once called The Waiting Room. And uh, I decided that the, the, the secret to waiting is not to wait at all. Uh, the important thing to do when you're waiting is to do something else and fill your waiting time with another project. And as a result of this constant behavior over my life, I, I now manage several hundred projects uh, and literary properties. Uh, that's, that's the scary part. But they all came from the waiting room while I was waiting for something to happen on the other side of a project like Meg or The Lost Valentine. We were working on other projects and bringing other projects to the next stage of wherever they were, and uh, that's what I urge everyone. Like, what do I do while I'm wait? Well, you don't wait. You start working on something else so that uh, you you get perspective toward the thing you're waiting for Uh, because otherwise people blow it all out of proportion, and if they finally get an obstacle they can't overcome, they think their life is over, they think they failed, but that's because they were doing the wrong things. They weren't. They were putting too much pressure on that one object, that one dream, and uh, not realizing they had the power to do other dreams and to 
manage them at once, like a kind of like a ringmaster at a circus. You know, if all yes. you can tame is animal, that's one thing. But if you can handle ten animals at once, then it's a lot more exciting for you as well as your audience. You know, you're you're inter- you're so interesting to me, and I, I want to remind people about this incredible website that you have, DoryMerchant.com. But as you scroll down your home page, there's something called Watch Ken's Videos. And you have some remarkable videos that, I, that will allow people to see you in action and, um, and sense how you feel about things. And I think the waiting room is um, featured in there, unless I, unless I misread that. I, I, I believe, I, I think I felt like I watched that, but maybe I... I was doing so much about, I was just sort of diving into you today and listening to all these different things that you've done. I feel very honored, frankly, that um, that you are joining me today on this podcast because um, that's not to say that because you have been so successful that someone maybe that hasn't had the Hollywood story doesn't also have an amazing story because I'm not comparing you to somebody else. I'm just saying that what you've done has been really interesting and people that are interested in the type of work that you do can find that on your, on your site because you have, you have multiple, multiple, um, companies and or I guess companies would might be the word but I mean between your productions and the writer's lifeline and the different things that you do for people that are trying to break into your industry um it's it's right there for the asking and I I I find that um uh, very generous of you and what what it is that you do and it makes me think about what books you're the proudest of since you've written so many. We've talked about some of the movies you've been involved, but what about the books that you that you're very proud of? Well, I've I've written over two dozen books, so and I'm proud of all of them. Uh and I had them all, you know, I had a great time writing each one of them and also talking about the book after it was published or even before it was published. But I, I think that the three that stand out for me are my very first book, which was called Homer's Iliad, The Shield of Memory, and uh, which won the highest academic award at Yale when, when I was getting my PhD. Uh, and probably 52 people around the world read it at this point, because that's what <laughs> happens to an academic book. And one funny story is I was invited to dinner by someone whose book I reviewed for the LA times one time. And he said he had a friend who wanted to meet me and I went to the dinner and, uh, the friend was Lillian Hellman, the great playwright. Um, and she wanted to sit next to me because she wanted to know if it was true that I wrote Homer's Iliad, the shield of memory. And I, I was so taken aback. I'd never had anybody a stranger approach me, obviously I'm about an academic book. Right. But she told me it was her favorite book, and she started reciting lines from the chapter on Helen of Troy, and uh, I just couldn't believe it. But I think wow. it was really a good book. Um, John Gardner wrote the preface to it and called it the best book he'd ever read. Um, mm. And so I'm proud of that one. 
I'm proud of a book called A Writer's Time, which I mentioned before that W.W. W. Norton published, which was the subtitle was A Guide to the Creative Process from Vision to Revision. And uh, I published that in 1986, and the New York Times gave it a great review. And now all these years later, it still sells thousands of copies a year. Uh, I am just amazed. I mean, it's gone through mm. four or five editions. Um, so I'm very fond of that book. And then I wrote a novel a few years ago called The Messiah Matrix that I think was one of the best books I've written. Um, a very mysterious adventure novel that connects uh, Augustus and the story of Jesus Christ. And um, I've gotten great response to that and interest in doing it as a TV series. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. And of course, the latest book here, my obit, I'm very proud of that, especially based on the response it's gotten. I was afraid people would go, so what? But in fact, I've gotten very strong, positive response to it. And yes. uh, I love that. That's what That's... writers live for, is just to get one person to respond. You know, that, that makes it worth it. I'm I'm sure. I know there's a satisfaction and completion and doing your best, but it's like anything. Validation is important. I mean, I don't think that's um, egotistical. I think it, what it does is, is it's, a, it's a way of validating. It's like what I thought was important, what I, what I wrote about in your case or what I've talked about in my case or whatever it is that I do. I mean, um, podcasting isn't the only thing I'm involved in. I'm very active in my Rotary Club. I'm very active in my Chamber of Commerce. Um, I'm a volunteer at the YMCA. You know, I have a, I, I'd like to think I have a balanced life. And, but it's nice when someone says to you, that was really well done. Because then you say, wow, I, I thank you. It's like when somebody picks up the phone that you're not expecting to hear from. And it's like, you must have been thinking about me. Thank you. I, I, I think that, you know, maybe other, not everybody needs the same level of validation. Some people don't need it at all, and I don't, I'm not judging that at all. I'm just saying that when you are as involved as you are in all of these careers, it's, it's, it's wonderful when somebody writes a review and says, boy, that, I really got something out of that. So I want to congratulate you on, on that part of your career. But you've had, you've just done so much, you know, this, you're like the Dos Equis guy. Um, you know, so you've, you've been involved in producing and you've been involved in managing. What, give us a little bit of the highlights about that side of your profession. There's so many, so many things happened. It's hard to, to you know, to pick one out of all of them or two, uh, right. two or three out of all of them. But uh, they're just things looking back that you, you were kind of didn't didn't believe you were there for that moment and savor it all the more for that reason. And you know, one of them was uh, with Maggie Gyllenhaal in London, uh, where she was wearing this big hoop dress because it was set in Victorian times, and. Uh, all of a sudden I heard singing coming from under her dress and that's where her, her, her four-year-old daughter was, who was, she was babysitting uh, during, you know, during the makeup and hair part, which goes on and on in a day for an actress. Uh, her daughter was under the dress playing and uh, it was, it was, that's hilarious. It showed you that 
but somebody's determined they'll find a way to do whatever they need to do. Uh, and she was determined to keep her career, even though she had kids and another one on the way at the time. And it was just mm-hmm. a delight chatting with seeing that. Wow. And one time at the Target Center in Minneapolis during the shooting of Joe Somebody uh, and Governor uh, Jesse Ventura was my client on a book called I Ain't Got Time to Bleed that we wrote and made into a New York seller, New York Times bestseller for him. But he, when I came to Minneapolis, he just had one request that he could meet with Tim Allen. And uh, Tim Allen actually had asked, requested me if he could meet with Governor Ventura. So I arranged the meeting and an hour before it, I passed Tim Allen's trailer and found out that he wasn't available to talk to me because he was getting his makeup done for the meeting with Governor Ventura. He was so <laughs> nervous about it. He wanted to That's touch so up funny. his makeup. And I just thought that was hilarious. That um, is funny. But they had a great meeting. And one time I was on the set of Life or Something Like It with Angelina Jolie, who, you know, who was the star of that. And she looked extremely nervous and was, raising one leg after the other. And I said, are you okay? What's going on? And she goes, I just have to pee so bad, but I don't want to interrupt what's going on here. I want to interrupt the flow. <laughs> so I called AD over, extricated herself from her chute so that she could just go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I just thought it was a great sign of her professionalism and humility. She wasn't arrogant or, you know, pretentious or star-like at all. Mm-hmm. She just was trying to do a good job and, and not cost us so much money by holding up things. And, you know, I just love that simplicity on her part. And that's, you really get to know actresses when you're doing movies. I was once doing a movie where the actress demanded uh, to get a copy of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section delivered to her on set on a Sunday shoot. And I walked up to her and I saw her fuming because somebody, you know, they'd gotten her the paper, but they gave her the whole paper. And she said, I just asked for that one section. And what am I supposed to do? Go through this whole thing myself and find it? I thought, oh, my man. God. What a pain in the neck. Wow. Uh, this is, you put people on your life is too short list. And uh, yep. she went fine. You know, I, I can't help but um, interject here. Um, so I'm, my son is uh, 47. My daughter will be 45 um, at the end of this week. You mentioned Jesse Ventura. So, you know, uh, that he was the wrestler when my son was a little boy. Do I still have his action figure? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do. Um, so, I That's mean, it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're winding me through my own life memories as you and I are having this conversation. And that's why I love this. I that's why I love this. I I had to interject that because I can still see that action figure in the bedroom with the other stuff that shouldn't probably be here anymore. Um, yeah, that's probably, it's moving, probably worth something. Maybe, maybe. Well, we should see. Um, and and I, I guess I'm thinking about you're you're bringing up conjuring up happy moments for me. I, I'd be curious, and I don't even know if you can even say what this might be, but what would you say would be one of your happier moments in your vast professional life? 
Well, yeah, I, I, I've had so many. How do you moments. how do you uh, answer that, right? Oh my God. Yeah, I can tell you. I can tell you generically that the happiest thing I do I, I get to do repeatedly is to discover a new story, to discover mm-hmm. an exciting book or script or manuscript that I know deserves to be seen or read by everybody in the world. And there's just nothing happier than that. I, as I read through it, I, I can't believe that it, you know, it made its way to me and that I can do something with it. Uh, that's a very happy moment. And that's what keeps me going is that there's an endless supply of those out there. And, you know, I don't, I only have a limited amount of time, but in that limited amount of time, I want to find as many of those as I can and help them get in front of their widest possible audiences. Um, so that's happening. What, I I can see that, and um, as I said, um, your website is really it's it's terrific, and this whole um, writer's lifeline and corporate. You know, I I would say, in this past twelve months, I would say probably seventy five to eighty percent of my guests have all been authors of some whether they're part of an anthologies, whether they've written their own books. You know, it's it's interesting to me, um, the writer's journey. Uh, it really is very, very interesting to me because you you all have something very similar in common. And if somebody's really looking to get in front of somebody like you, they can do that. And that's another thing they can check out on your actual um, website. So with this bit of we've got left, what what are you working on right now? I know you said that you've got volume two coming out. You're working on maybe three and four of, of other books. Is is that what's kind of keeping you busy right now? Well, that and in uh, uh, every one of these companies, something exciting is going on. Like we're uh, selling a series, which I believe we now sold to a major studio TV series, uh, animation, first animation series I've sold, uh, and I'm ex- very excited about closing that up and starting the production. Uh, we're casting a movie that I wrote and trying to get it into production, and uh, I'm raising funds for a major film fund, a $200, $300 million film fund, with a guy and a company that's per- that's financed over 300 films. Um, so there's always something going on, and uh, I think right now I'm focused on television series. I want to get three or four series set up, hopefully by the end of this year, and we've got at least ten of them in the hopper, uh, from which I hope those three or four will come. And uh, so all of this keeps me up, you know, keeps me on my toes all day and gives me yeah. something to look forward to. I think you, it's the definition of a happy day when you can look forward to something that you're going to be doing that day. And uh, I, <clears throat> that happens most of the time these days. I'm very grateful for that. That's, that's, that's so terrific. I, I really wonder, all the people that are listening right now, if I, had, if I could see them, and I would say um, with a show of hands, how many of you feel like you're living a happy life right now? I wonder how many people would raise their hands and say, that's me. 
that's my attitude. You know, it's it's well, I, I, I hope it's everybody. I hope that's say everybody, again? Marcia. And I, I said I hope that would be everybody yes, in an audience. I do too. Because, because it's it's the purpose of life. Uh, I ran across a, a a note in a book by a Spanish philosopher named Jose Ortega de Gasset, and and it was a book called On Love. And here's what the statement said: I think the only immoral thing is for a being not to live every instant of its life with the utmost intensity. And I just, the minute I read that, it resonated so deeply in me that I thought, this is my standard in life. You know, this is my flag, is to mm-hmm. live your life intensely, every moment of it, and uh, don't waste any of it on things that are not intense and that you don't care about. Um, of course, there are are down times, but that's part of mm-hmm. it. When you have a downtime, make it exciting, make it intense, and make it something that you want to do again. And uh, I just tried to live my life by that standard and help other people do it, which is why I wrote a book on career change, because the big thing about career change is do it now. Don't wait. Don't, don't think about it for 20 years, because every day that you haven't done it yet is a day lost to your new challenge to your new career mm-hmm. and uh, if you're starting to think about it it's it's already in the cards for you and you don't want to be sitting on some rocking chair in some porch wishing that you'd done it regretting that you didn't do it so get out there and do it if other people do it why can't you do it I, I love that I, I I really love that and I know um, I'm interjecting my husband again here um, that Jesuit educated engineer, electrical engineer. Um, but he lived by a very simple principle, which was, it is what it is. And I would say, yeah, but, and he would say, no, adapt. And he lived a life without regret. And those are important principles that regardless of where you are in your life, today, whether you're a senior citizen like us or you're the age of my children or you're the age of a 15-year-old, when you, when you live a, um, a great life, a happy life, then you want to have no regrets. Now, if you, we, we all make mistakes. We all do things that went, gee, I could have handled that differently or, gosh, you know, Next time, I think there was a lesson here, and I think I just heard that lesson, so I'm going to approach this slightly differently. But yeah. I, I think, I don't you think that trying to live a life without regret is really a really um, wonderful way and outlook for living life? Yeah, that's been for me because um, I don't know, I, I kind of adopted that idea long ago when I was to. A teenager, uh-huh. and um, I especially couldn't couldn't understand people who who would spend a day not doing anything, and I I would interrogate them to find out if I really understood what they were telling me. But if somebody would tell me that he spent the whole day in a chair, and I <laughs> thought to myself, doing what? Um, yeah. What can you do here all day? I mean, read. Yeah, I, that I understood, but he wasn't reading. He was just goofing around, and. Uh, and I I never understood that. I never understood people who wasted their time um, 
And you're entitled to, I know, and you should maybe do some of that. But um, my, in my time management system, you actually plan the time to do that, and it's limited. Mm-hmm. You limit it like everything else in life uh, mm-hmm. so that it doesn't become suffocating and boring. Uh, right. The, you know, you go on a hike for three hours, you don't go on an endless hike because at a certain point, tedium sets in, and I'd like to skip the tedium part in life. That's what I've always tried to do. I I can see why you've been so successful, but you've had all of these different. I I, I think about your name, and I just it's it's like um, all these words are underneath your face: a writer, editor, publisher, literary manager, producer, professor, mama, mama, mama. The life goes on. So of all of those that I just mentioned, what are your favorites? Uh, well, that's a good question because um, favorites is the key, is the key word. Uh, yeah. The most satisfying is certainly writing because it's the one part of life where I have complete control and I don't have to consult with anybody on it. Um, I don't have to, you know, until I've done my first draft, I don't have to even talk to editors. But um, so it's very satisfying. You really are lost in time when you're writing. And I do it very early in the morning. I like to get up at 4 and uh, and mm-hmm. get uh, several hours done before 9 o'clock where the regular day begins. And so, yeah, from a challenging point of view, producing is by far the most challenging. Um, and because you just never know what's going to hit you next. I mean, we're doing this movie now. That for, first, it has the issue was COVID, and now the issue is the war in Ukraine. And, uh, right. you know, neither one of these was predictable when we started out doing the movie. And uh, both of them are big enough to kill, you know, smaller projects, lesser projects. Mm-hmm. And we just have to keep putting, you know, one foot in front of another as long as we can. So there's always challenge in producing. And uh, so from that point of view, I guess that's my favorite. Uh, from a satisfaction point, it's writing, uh-huh. you know. Um, when you mentioned writing, and I like to, I like to um, ask authors and writers this this said this question because you said you get up really early. I happen to get up early as well, and and you start this writing process. Is does that look like you sitting in front of a computer and just typing away? Or are you manually writing into journals? What's kind of your writing process for you? Well, I used to use, you know, handwriting long ago, but uh-huh. I'm very much, I'm very much a lazy person in terms of I will find the method that is the most time effective, and uh, computers beat everything else because the way the brain works is is like a computer. If you're writing something in a novel and you realize you should have written something else that goes before that, well, you can write that something else whenever you want to and then slip it in front of it, which is exactly the way your brain works. Your brain can instantly Mm -hmm. shift the order of things, which is why I warn some of my books, I warn writers not to use spiral notebooks because then the the structure of whatever you're writing is dictated by the spiral in the notebook. That's not a natural, you know, shape. But your brain can handle any kind of a shape and shove some things around within it, and so can a computer. 
so um, yeah, I that, that's I write on the computer now and really have no. If I'm thinking it's a very complex thing and it has to do with structure, and I'm kind of outlining, then I might take out the legal pad and do uh-huh. that. But I abandon that the minute I can see the shape again and go back to the screen and and do that. I'm just too practical not to use the fastest <laughs> way possible. I'm I'm thinking about what what <clears throat> what this looks like in your mind and and the physicality of this. And do you ever just like in the middle of the night or you're taking a walk or you're doing whatever you're doing and you just get this like, "Oh my god, I just got this idea." Do you always have a pad and a paper nearby where you just I got to write this down right now or I'm going to forget it? You know, that's a very good question, too, because A Writer's Time talks about that at length. You have to Mm -hmm. discipline yourself not to write those flashes down. Really? You have to take charge. Yeah, just the opposite, because if you write them down, then the part of your brain that's in charge of being practical and retentive uh, has to put all those little pieces together. It can't throw them away. It needs to put them together for no other reason than that you wrote them down. But if you, instead, when a flash like that happens, you say to it, hey, go back to where you came from and talk to me at 8 tomorrow when I'm writing. And if, <laughs> if, you, if you come back, then I'll write it. But I'm not going to write it randomly in the middle of the night or on a bus somewhere. Uh, that's just not the way it works. I'm in charge here, not, you know, not serendipity. Uh, you'll discover I, you're much more. Oh man! Go ahead. I want know that. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just—I think you're the first writer that has ever said that to me, and I love that. Uh, what freedom! Hey, you know, brain. Okay, okay. So I just got to tell you, I'm—I'm I'm sitting at the bus bench waiting to go. I am not writing this down on a pad. If it's that good, it'll come to me tomorrow. I'll—I'll I'll pick it up where right. we left off. Yeah, now think about it. If it doesn't, if it doesn't come to you tomorrow, then you've forgotten something that is forgettable. But the problem is, if you if you write it down in the middle of the night, then yes. you're stuck with something that you had an opportunity to forget, and you didn't give yourself the opportunity. Because it's believe me, it's forgetting things are more important than remembering them when it comes to writing. Oh yes, that is. You know, I tell people when I'm trying to do so many things at the same time, and I call myself like a master juggler, and it's like, oh, God, this technology, oh, my God, somebody else do this. And then I think to myself, okay, take a deep breath. There's only so much bandwidth between the left ear and the right ear. And right now, unless you're going to get rid of something, there's no more space up there. So you're going to have to let something go here. Otherwise, you're not going to retain anything. And I I think that your practicality probably leads into the fact of why you personally have been so successful. I think there should be a movie about you. I don't know. Who would star in it? Oh, my God. Who would star in it? Ken, who would star in it? Who would would you want to be you? Uh, Well... That's a good question. Somebody oh, is a man. combination of Danny DeVito and Johnny Depp. <laughs> there you go, Danny DeVito. And, oh, my God. Wrap your mind around that, everybody. That is funny. 
because I, I, you said Danny DeVito, and I immediately saw Arnold Schwarzenegger doing Twins. Oh my God! Yeah, that's so, that's so funny. That this has just been such a delightful hour of of a conversation with a very accomplished man, and there is so much more left in you. And I'm just, I'm just very, very grateful for the time you spent with me today and the incredible amount of work you've put into everything you do. It, it, it's, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. It's obvious to anyone that's listened to this show that you are accomplished. But, but, that is, but it's your own personal satisfaction, I think, that you get from this. You don't need 12,000 people telling you you're great. You need to know you're great, and you do. And that alone says a whole lot about you as well. And I, I just, I want to thank you thank for, you. for being so generous with your time. I'm thinking about that pot and that plot and all the other wonderful stories that you have shared with us today. And I can't wait to see what these other volumes are all about. And I might just add to those of you that consider buying this this book, and I hope that you do. It's easily um, bought on Amazon. There are some fabulous pictures within this book as well. It's all in black and white, and it, it's it's just wonderful. I, I mean, there's family pictures. There's all kinds of pictures in here, and I just want to congratulate you on a job well done, my friend. Well, thank you, Marcia, and thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you. We could obviously keep talking forever, but um, I, I, I've always heard about your show being the best for this, and uh, oh. now I've gotten to experience myself, and I'm really grateful. But um, that, thank you so much for listening. Well, and you know what? Thank you for that compliment, because when someone says something kind to you, what I've learned is you're not supposed to say, oh, no, really, it's that. No, you simply say, thank you. Thank you for your compliment. That is your gift to me, and I am grateful for that. And as I move on to being prepared for next week and the, and the, and the shows that are continuing to follow me this year, I'm really grateful to have people like yourself that that join me and I I I'm I'm I look forward, you know, I oftentimes have guests return to my show and perhaps towards the end of the year or maybe this time next year you'll you'll bring us up to date to where you are now. But for right now, I just want to congratulate you recognize that you'll when i wake up tomorrow morning at 5:30 i'll be thinking oh i bet i know what ken's doing right now he's uh, in the studio and he's writing so um thank you once again for for being my guest on the born to talk radio show podcast and goodbye everybody for thank you for all for listening and i'll see you again next week bye for now everybody thank you Marcia, again and goodbye Thank you.